Hi guys, welcome to the latest episode of the Irish Balance podcast. If you are new to this podcast, you're very welcome. And if you're not, then welcome back. My name is Kira, as many of you might know, and I'm a qualified medical doctor specializing in public health, recently moved to Galway, and I'm at the Irish Balance on social media. And my message to you guys on my blog and my social media and my podcast is all about bringing a healthy and sustainable balance to our busy lives. This week's guest is, for the second time, Joe O'Brien, who wrote the very successful at Head for Zero page on Instagram and the Head First podcast as well. Joe has an undergraduate degree in psychology and a master's in health psychology. And his message and content, which I'm a big fan of, is centered around raising awareness about mental health um, and reducing stigma around this topic, all through, very importantly, evidence-based content. And this episode is a highly anticipated part. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad. Welcome, Joe, back for part two. There'll be a lot of people waiting for this now. I hope you're excited. I am very, very excited. It's all talking about things that I'm super passionate about. So uh, delighted to be back on. So guys, this podcast part two has been in the planning for quite some time and it has come after my move from east to west. So, you know, rest assured, we wanted to do it justice and not rush it. So we just had so much to chat about, I think, on part one, Joe, that we didn't really get through at all unless we made it like a two hour. No, it was we had a lot to talk about. And even after we recorded that podcast, we spoke on the phone for ages afterwards. So we just had so much to say that we we had to come back and apologies on my end as well, because um, I've been also moving apartment and um, moving job. So um, big changes for me as well. And I keep putting it off. So it's partly my fault. But maybe that just builds the anticipation. Exactly. And also, people can clearly see how dedicated we are because we're back recording this a second time. <laughs> Absolutely. After all of the change. So welcome yeah. back to the podcast. And I think some people might remember from the first episode, we talked about quite a lot, but two topics we didn't get to do were social media and alcohol and how they interrelate with mental health. And I think they're both really topical and quite different as well. Um, so first of all, to start off, Joe, if it's okay, a lot of people will have heard your introduction in part one, but if you could just give us a bit of an idea about your background, maybe your career to date and how Head First got started. Yeah, yeah. So um, it actually got started when I was speaking to my manager um, back in November and we were speaking about the state of affairs um, on <laughs> social media um, regarding mental health and how there's so much misinformation out there and how it's so difficult to kind of... Um, get the right message because there are so few people doing evidence-based psychology and evidence-based mental health and I took it on myself that day to kind of um, be the person who put out that content so um, that was kind of the main motivation for me and since then I guess the popularity of it has kept it going for me. Uh, My background is in health psychology as you mentioned so that would be the link between physical and mental health on my page I talk an awful lot about nutrition uh, exercise sleep kind of all the lifestyle factors that impact mental health um, I also work in a company called Spectrum Mental Health and I work in the clinical team there so we actually deal with the clinical side of things as well as my own background in um, health psychology so my day-to-day job would uh, be more so the clinical aspects we also do corporate mental health but then obviously on the side I do the head first stuff and that is more weighted around the health psychology stuff so I think it's a nice mix and you only started head first like this year am I right um says December or, or December or was July, just December post. yeah because so I think eight, I started following eight, in January. eight months the, the eighth this eight is the eighth months. month yeah wow oh my god do you ever yeah, regret it? <laughs> sometimes no I, no, I don't yeah uh, because like it I honestly thought on the walk home today, how do, what did I do with all my time before I put it into doing this headfirst stuff? Because 
I honestly spend about 20 to 30 hours on it a week and it is massively time consuming, but it's massively rewarding as well. So it's so, so nice when people interact on my page and, and talk to me and ask me questions and stuff like that. So definitely, definitely nothing to regret. And it seems to have helped quite a few people. So definitely. I think anyone who follows your page will absolutely really appreciate and, you know, can tell the dedication you put into it, like quality over quantity, I think definitely is uh, is what comes across um, and how much you care, I think, about getting the conversation around mental health started and um, from an evidence-based point of view because as I said to you in part one I don't think I was following any mental health Instagram page before yeah, I found because it. there's so few of them mm, exactly. yeah see exactly. the thing is is there's lots of pages out there that are personal stories and like my story mm. from recovery and how I got through for example how I got through my anxiety how I got through my depression whatever their story is and that's fantastic and it's great for getting the story are getting the kind of um people's stories out there and getting the conversation going however it's only from one perspective and i think someone from within a mental health background gives a more maybe broad perspective on multiple different aspects rather than just kind of one avenue so i'm glad i could kind of bring that um to the table definitely it becomes a hub from which you can share lots of different mental health focused topics and so while someone's story is really powerful and valuable I think what's probably more valuable to affect more people is a hub where you're covering lots of different mental health topics that will reach different people. Yeah, I would hope so. I would hope so. So the first topic that we're going to get into, and I think it'll be hard to get us off this topic, but it's social media. Okay. And (laughs) yeah, so it's a topic I'd like to chat about because I think, as you've mentioned before, it's very new in terms of the, um, the... the evidence based on it uh, as regards mental health is is very, very new. And you posted quite a bit about it on your page. You wrote um, an article on my blog for it as well. And recently that of the food medic, um, particularly looking at social media, the topic of addiction and whether that uh, from an evidence based point of view does apply to how we use our smartphones and then overall the mental health impacts. Um, and we know I suppose technology is, is really more and more of an integrated part of our lives, probably more than we'd like it to be at times. And I think we do have to work really hard building a balanced relationship with it Um, especially because when we look at social media we're often looking at someone's kind of curated highlight reel and not necessarily the bits and pieces they aren't sharing so I'd like to start by asking you what the research tells us about our smartphones and social media and whether if these uh, phones and our use of them might be classed as addictive behaviors um yeah it's really really interesting I did a poll on my Instagram a while ago to see if people thought it was classified as an addiction or it wasn't. And I think somewhere in the region of 80 or 90% of people said that they thought it was a categorized addiction. Um, So what is, I guess, interesting about that is that it's not yet categorized as a mental health disorder. Um, Mm. Basically, mental health professionals use, or the majority use, a thing called the DSM, which is like... It's like a manual of all the mental health disorders. And as of yet, um, it's not been updated with um, an addiction to smartphones or social media or anything in that aspect. Now, it hasn't been updated since 2013. And from my reading of the research and from what you see in kind of evidence-based practice, which is seeing, you know, what you see around you and what presents Mm -hmm. in front of you in, in, in clinics or whatever that is, is that it certainly can be, or there is certainly an argument for presenting it as an addictive behavior. Um, Because if you look at what categorizes an addiction in other behavioral addictions, 
it's the failure to resist um, an impulse um, or an impulse to actually use it. So I think, <laughs> me certainly, mm. I absolutely find it difficult to, if my phone is beside me, just to leave it there. Yeah, I think that for me to actually leave it or stay away from it is to actually leave it in a different room or leave it with somebody else or put a lock on it of some sort. So the failure to resist impulse to use your phone is is one aspect. Um, another is the impact on mood. I'm sure we'll cover that later on. But mm. if that's starting to impact your mood, it might be a sign that um, it's potentially uh, addictive Um using for excessive periods or longer than intended. I have definitely my own, I have, have my own story about this um I don't know if you've heard of the app moment so I'm not an apple person okay I do not have moment okay my, I think moment is on both but I might be wrong I I, I might be wrong used, I, <laughs> I used I used moment okay and moment yeah. tracked uh, how many times I opened my phone or how many times I unlocked it or picked it up and it said for people my age that they should be opening their phone 41 times a day. And I think that was about three times an hour on average, if my memory is correct. Now, mm. don't quote me on those maths. Yeah, I But it's a, approximately three times an hour, I think, something around. If you're if you're awake for, for 16 hours, it should be somewhere, yeah. in the 40, somewhere in the 40s. And I tested my phone thinking, oh, yeah, you know, that's going to be achievable. I'll do my best to, to only pick it up 40 times during the day or 41 times. And that day I picked up my phone 156 times. Really? And, yeah. And I think I genuinely believe that a lot of people would fall into that category of thinking, you know, I'm not that bad. But then when they actually look at it, it might kind of yeah. scare them <laughs> to actually look at your screen time because it it certainly surprised me. I think I well, I thought that I had a really good relationship with my phone, and then that really kind of shocked me into making some changes. So, using mm. for excessive periods is another kind of indicator that it might be um, problematic. For example, these sorry, can I just say that these are just based on other behavioral addictions? These are just suggested ways of telling because, as I said, it's not categorized. There is yeah. no single way of telling at the moment. Um, then continuing to use it, even if it's having a ne negative impact on your mental well-being or your physical well-being, and then impacting your functioning in day-to-day -day life. So that's things like if it's getting in the way of relationships, if it's getting the way in the way of you doing your job or going to school or studying or driving or whatever those things are that you do day-to-day. -day. If your phone is getting in the way of them, it could potentially be a sign. So although it's not classed technically as an addiction, and um, there are certainly reasons to believe that it may be in the future or that it certainly has signs that mirror um, some form of behavioral addiction. I think probably the most interesting one out of those um, are we. Yeah, because I remember the DSM from trying to essentially learn it off by heart for medical school. <laughs> but, um, the, the functional impairment part used to yeah. always strike me as being the most worrying when we used to look at addictive substances like alcohol and drug misuse and things like that. And we learned when we did our psychiatry rotations and that was often the clearest one you could get from a person's history. But yeah. I think it's a lot more subtle with smartphones because I would say a lot of people listening to this and my, you know, I have to put restrictions on myself at work. I would never have used my phone during hospital time, but sometimes at lunchtime you'd pick it up. Do you know that kind of way you'd have the yeah, time? Yeah. But you do really have to fight to not use it at work, I think. Um, yeah, and I know, 100%. like, yeah, and I say, I'd say a lot of people would relate to that. Uh, and also, it's probably a whole other can of worms, but while driving. 
Um, yeah, and I'm not speaking from one. personal experience, but I would I would say there's a reason why we have campaigns against texting while driving. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it is. It, we think as a human race that we are good at multitasking. There's also a myth that women are better at multitasking than men. We're as humans terrible at multitasking. If are you sure anyone, we're not just uh, slightly less terrible than a? Uh, maybe, maybe you're slightly <laughs> less terrible. But in general, we are terrible. In everybody is terrible because if you've ever tried to text while you're driving. One minute you're in the middle of the road and it takes you 10 minutes to send a text message. We're so bad at dividing our attention. And it is one of the things that people think is really productive by doing two things at once. And it's the complete opposite from all the research that we have. Doing two things that are cognitively quite difficult yeah. is is not not helpful. So driving is a huge one. Could you see this being incorporated, do you think, in the future into... I suppose the DSM like we've seen like we've seen a lot of calls for for example orthorexia um you know that sort of yeah similarly like something that's not technically classified yet as far as I know in the DSM but maybe in the future it seems to be what in widespread use from a medical jargon point of view I I think on some level it will be now the mm. ICD is another kind of ca- thing mm. that categorizes mental health disorders now that seems to include everything I think there's something on that in there but it's not considered as comprehensive as the DSM or as thorough because like mm. I said it, it does include everything if you think you're struggling on any level you will likely find something in the ICD that you will identify with and um, but the DSM I think when it's it's new update comes out or whenever that is it could certainly be, be categorized because we also know from the research that in some people it um, creates withdrawal symptoms mm. and to consider that and when you compare it to other drugs who, that also have withdrawal symptoms it's quite evident that there are certainly aspects of phone use and social media use that mirror that of a behavioral addiction I think. Yeah I, what I find interesting um, and hopefully the listeners might relate to this but I've seen on social media a shift towards people going from kind of just using it mindlessly to being mindful of its use and almost being a bit annoyed by how easily it takes their time and attention. And I say that as if we don't have personal responsibility, we do. But I think these are extremely cleverly developed apps. Um, yeah, of course. If if anyone thinks that Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and, and Twitter and all of these different apps, if anyone thinks that they're designed not to be addictive or not to have you always coming back then they're very very naive because that's like i i would imagine that some of the like behavior some of the like top behavioral people in the world in terms of psychology and in terms of analyzing behavior they definitely work for the big tech companies because it's so so engaging it's absolutely riveting how how engaging it is it's it's incredible mm. and no matter how aware you are of it because like this is one of my favorite research areas no matter how aware you are of it it's very difficult just to you know logic and awareness doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be good at managing your relationship with your phone absolutely yeah absolutely i mean i read it's a while ago now this year but i read digital minimalism and if for anyone who hasn't read it it's by the author cal newport who also wrote deep work and essentially it's about um how to not allow technology to take your time and to remove your ability to 
work productively from a cognitive point of view. And I enjoyed digital minimalism a lot more because it really went into social media and talked about like the, the design of these apps. And once you hear them likened to slot machines, it's very hard to think of them differently. That yeah. really stuck yeah. with me because um, yeah. I wouldn't consider myself a person who uses slot machines. And yet you're almost going back for this drip feed of likes or comments. I was or just messages. about to say, yeah, the way the way that likes are, are delivered to you are drip feed. And yeah. as far as I'm aware, they're updating that so that you get your likes in like it's all grouped together and it doesn't come up one notification at a time. And they're testing that in different places. Wow, um, okay. But at the same time, it's designed like it is designed to keep you engaged. And it does a really, really good job of that. A really good job of that. So I guess what we can say at the moment is that categorically speaking, from an actual diagnostic perspective, it's not an addiction. It may be. In the future, potentially when we have more research on the topic, people may feel it, it, it fits those criteria. But for the moment, there is enough to say that we definitely need to be very mindful of our use, particularly if we're ticking some of those boxes that you mentioned earlier in terms Absolutely, of the time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But, but I think it's, it's also important to note that even though it's not classified as an addiction, you can have a problematic relationship with a lot of different things. Like you can have a problematic relationship with food, you can have a problematic relationship mm -hmm. with exercise, you can have a problem, problematic relationship with the internet or your phone without necessarily yeah. falling into mental health disorder criteria anyway. So if you Very do true. recognize any of those symptoms or you, you feel like it is an issue, just because it's not a categorized mental health disorder does not mean that there's nothing you can do and seeing a professional would be a fantastic step in the right direction if you do feel like it's some you know doing something like impacting your mood for example or impacting your ability to function in your job or with your relationships or, or whatever that is absolutely thank you for that i actually had intended in my head to begin this podcast with a disclaimer but i forgot so thank you very much <laughs> really appreciate that uh, so if we look outside of sort of addictive behaviors and the classifications there we know much in from a third point of view of social media and um mental health separately to addictive behaviors like you mentioned impact on mood yeah um so there are a couple of things that i think are part of the fundamentals of how social media could impact your mental health negatively um, it does have some positives but i'm going to focus on the negatives because a lot of people don't kind of see the negatives or aren't aware of the negatives and I think mm. it's important to know the risks when you are engaging in social media all the time and that sort of thing so um the one of the things is social social isolation now okay we feel like social media is a social platform but I'm not saying this research is of good quality but I did an Instagram poll yesterday and out of I think somewhere in the region of 600 votes 20 people said that it encouraged real life social interaction. 20. So 20. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah, That's exactly. It is disappointing because they're social media platforms and they're, they're there to, for, for, to help people be social. And if people aren't utilizing it for that reason, they might become isolated. They might feel like they're, keeping up to date with their friends online is the exact same, but it's not replicating real life relationships and real life relationships and interpersonal connection is a really, really good predictor of, um, of positive mental well-being. So Absolutely. if we're moving away from actually being social into a place where we're being social online, but moving away from that interpersonal real life um, relationship forming stuff, mm. it's going to have a negative effect. 
So that's yeah, one absolutely. aspect. Um, the other one is is comparison. Now, the you know you always probably hear the saying that comparison is the thief of joy, mm. and it really really is in this case because now this doesn't apply to everybody no matter what i say in this podcast um it's important to note that when i say for example um social comparison or comparing yourself to others is a product of social media it doesn't mean it applies to everybody it applies to some people more than others but self-comparison is one of the ways that it it's very easy to make yourself feel bad about yourself um and I like to I like to refer to this as the happiness barrier. But people mm. often look at others on social media and say, "Oh, look, they have." Let's uh, let's talk about body image for a second, just yeah. as an example. If I had their body, oh, I'd be so happy with myself. And yeah. then when they get to that point, they then have that body and they've worked really hard. But then they there's always going to be somebody else who has a different body or a better body in their eyes. And I yeah. I'm doing quote unquote with my fingers here, yeah. better body, because because no matter what we strive for, whether it's followers or likes or engagement, a better body, money, whatever it is, and we're comparing ourselves to others, there's always going to be somebody on the next level, the next step. So if we feel like the happiness is is striving to be somewhere else, it's going to be very difficult to be happy right now. Um, so comparing yourself to others and getting your happiness from from those kind of things is is kind of a recipe for disaster in my eyes. It's it's obviously not a complete disaster, but it just it, it leads you to a place where it's very difficult to be happy with what you have right now if you're yeah. always striving to be somebody else or somewhere else. Um, and there's just related to that the, the a quote that I really really like is um, if you can't be happy with what you have now what makes you think you'll be happy with more Absolutely. because practicing practicing gratitude and practicing happiness and being happy is a skill it's not just something you have or don't have it's something that you can practice day to day so i think the the fact that social media allows for comparison not just on like a social scale think about like 20 or 30 years ago you used to compare yourself to maybe somebody you met in person mm. or somebody on your football team who was better than you or whatever Social media makes this, you know, tenfold, 100fold. It just amplifies the level of comparison and the ease at which you can compare yourself to others and see yourself as inferior by comparison to those people because it's everywhere. You've access to hundreds of thousands of people's lives online. It's very, very easy for you to not be happy in yourself because you see other people doing things that you potentially would like to do. Mm. So that's another one. Um and that's, I think, a big one. And then the last one I would say is sleep, but we can get into sleep another time, maybe. Yeah, that would that would definitely be another ninety minute podcast. Like, oh, the length, the length yeah, of an yeah. entire sleep cycle, like that. <laughs> um, pun intended. Pun intended. No, I re- I agree. I think there's two. I suppose the two the first two points you made, I think they ring home most true with me because first of all, with comparison, like there was an article I read recently, and it looked at how basically how the online world may change our brain. And uh, it was a, I'm pretty sure it was a systematic review, but in any case, they I think it was the one, I actually think I emailed you the PDF for this one, but they were talking about how it affects our attention, um, how it affects our ability to learn. But thirdly, they spoke about social comparison and how 
like you say, we went from maybe comparing ourselves to someone we might infrequently come across in person or someone we would see in school, maybe or at work. And then we have magazines where obviously body image is everywhere. And just taking that as the example, you know, during the summer, you might have all of these sort of bikini body type of things going on in all of the women's magazines, which drives me mad. But now we have apps in our phones that anytime we're bored or idle, we can just click into and we know that they're designed to take our attention and we can click into them and be always comparing. So the infrequent comparison that we might have maybe affected us a little bit and then we kind of moved on from it, it's just always there. And yeah, I just I think mean, it's sorry, such a cycle. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, no, work away, work away. No, it's going to say I, I, I was just going to... Yeah, well, <laughs> we're really you good. You go ahead. Um, <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, um, I think one of the things that's really important to note is that what they found is that um, in, in some of the literature that exposure to these things all of the time, whether you are consciously comparing yourself to others or not, still has an impact on your, for example, if you take the body image issue, it still has an impact on your self-esteem, on your body image and on your aesthetic ideals. Whether or not you're, you're consciously saying, oh, I wish I was her, or I wish I was him, or I wish I looked like that. Whether or not you're saying that to yourself in your head, exposure alone to those things all the time will change your body aesthetic ideals, which means that your idea of a, inverted commas, perfect body will, will change simply by exposing yourself to these things. And it was, it was kind of what motivated my post yesterday, which was on um, who you follow on social media and to reflect on if surrounding yourself with all of these things is good for you. Is it adding things to your life? And I think for a lot of cases, it's not, especially when it comes to things like, like body image and, and these ideal looking models who are like, you know, one in a million genetically, you know, just genetically gifted. And or 100% for, photoshopped. Yeah. Also. Yeah. And for, for, us as just regular people who also love food um to try and to try and reach those those kind of um body image ideals is is so unrealistic and like i said simple exposure to that is potentially warping what we feel like is normal absolutely yeah i mean that's the thing it's, it's as you say there's always an upward you know there's always someone who will appear to have more and i think i've said this in the past in a post but like so many of us will chase like an ideal of perfection, but it's it's, not, it's an ideal and it's subjective. Like your idea of what perfection might be will be totally different to what mine is and mine to my mom's or my sister's or whatever. You know, it's it's subjective. And so we really have to move away from that. And like you say, I think that quote, being happy at what you have now instead of what you think you need. Basically, I know I've just paraphrased that, but it really is so important because there's Absolutely. always something extra you can seek. Yeah, yeah. Like we're never you're never going to get to a scenario if, if, if that is your thought process and that is always your thinking, it's going to be very difficult for you to get to a place where you go right now. I'm happy. I'm mm -hmm. happy with this now because I have it. Because if you're like, like you said, there's always going to be someone the next step on the ladder. Yeah, exactly. So we've spoken about, I know you've spoken there about like some of the aspects where it can be detrimental to mental health. Um, I think they're great take home points for people listening. What do you think then are things we can look out for? I guess we've spoken about like the sort of signs of maybe problematic use of smartphone and social media, but maybe some of the take home positive points that we should maybe try and maximize from our use of these apps. Because I don't, I think a lot of people would agree, like there are positives. It's just that 
a lot of the time the negatives seem to outweigh them because we spend so much time on them. Yeah, 100%. Um, but maybe if we just talk about a couple of the positives in your I think from, from I think the main the main thing to do with social media and I get this question an awful lot from from parents is how do you help, you know, how do how do I help help my child monitor their social media behavior? Mm. And my answer to that is the same for children as it is for adults and it is use your social media tools as a facilitator of real life relationships because they're so so important. And like, if you talk to, if you text your friend for 20 minutes, it's going to be a very different feeling after texting someone, somebody for 20 minutes than hanging around with your friend for 20 minutes. In my yeah. experience, anyway, yeah. uh, I think we get so much more out of real life social interaction. So my, literally my number one tip is to use it as a facilitator for real life interaction and use it the way it's supposed to be used. And that's to be social because one aspect of the research, uh, like I said, is that passive users, did I mention that earlier about passive users? Um, no. Um, so, so passive users of social media have been um, shown to have higher levels of distress and higher levels of uh, depressive symptoms and anxiety symptoms related to social media use than active okay. users. And a passive user would be somebody who scrolls and scrolls, but doesn't actually interact with the people that they are connected with on social media. So yeah. those people are kind of more at risk of the negative mental health aspects. So that's mm -hmm. where it's important to kind of reach out to people and use it the way it's supposed to be used. And that's to be social. The other aspect I would look at is definitely screen time and what you're doing with your time i would always always after my own personal experience and that picking my phone up for 156 times <laughs> after that experience i would always recommend just for if it's only for a week just to monitor your screen time and where yeah. what what you do with your time um, and also if you're going to monitor your screen time just monitor how interacting with social media and stuff like that makes you feel because i think sometimes people might not put it down pe people might not put down a bad mood to constantly being on social media and mm -hmm. it might kind of slip under the under the radar that it might actually be having a negative impact on us so um, monitor how you feel in relation to your social media use um, definitely monitor your screen time but yeah. use it how it's supposed to be used Exactly. Yeah. No, I love all of those. I think the offline is so important. Like it's the main reason that I haven't sacked in my Instagram and gotten rid of it because <laughs> I do think it has facilitated some really awesome like real world interaction. And it's led me to do so much with this podcast as well. And I think like it just it, it, there is ways to use it to bring value to people and for people to take value from it. But we do have to be so aware of um, the effect it has on us, even if like you say, some of that is subconscious and it is hard to detect. The other thing yeah. I'd add, I suppose, is for people, if they can at all, try try and just not scroll. I know that's so hard and I sound so lofty by saying that. But honestly, <laughs> I went cold turkey on it about a year ago because it was just really affecting my mental health. And I, I actually don't I don't ever scroll ever. Really? Um, yeah, not at all. Like literally. No, I don't. It's like That's my thumbs impressive. lost the muscle memory. I don't know what happened. I genuinely don't know what you've the trained was, us. You've trained it well. Yeah, we need to train it to stop going to the same place on my phone homepage. But anyway. <laughs> um, no, thank you. They were. I thought they were fantastic. Um, and the other thing, sorry, the other final take I'd say to people is, if you can, try turning off notifications if they are on for your social media, because it's just one way to take back your own time. And try the social media apps first. Maybe even try your WhatsApps, but it really does allow you to just be less reactive and like yeah, pick up yeah. your phone less. I, I do that myself, actually. I have no notifications bar phone calls. So yeah, exactly. um, people always say, oh, what if I miss something? And that's that FOMO kicking in that, oh, yeah. what if something happens? What if something happens? 
tr test it and again if it's only for a week or so just test it and see if anything does happen because you're going to point out to yourself if you're one of those people who says oh something's going to happen you'll likely point out to yourself that nothing actually happens when you're offline so worth yeah. definitely worth give, uh, trying it yeah exactly okay I'm going to put social media aside for a second because I think we absolutely tore into that topic. Um, <laughs> so I hope people took took some insight and value from that and do let us know, obviously, how you guys are finding your own social media use from this podcast. Um, and the second topic we wanted to talk about, I know, was alcohol in Ireland yeah. specifically. And hopefully I won't get any hate for this, but it is one of the hardest topics to bring up in Irish society, I think. And why that is, I guess, is complex. But nationally and internationally, it is seen as part of our quotation marks culture and I think this often masks the really startling figures around how high um, the levels of consumption are in Ireland and also really importantly the type of consumption we have so just to give people some facts and figures for context um, for for Irish uh, in terms of Irish le uh, levels of alcohol consumption in Ireland excuse me um, per, for each person per year, this was 11.46 litres of pure alcohol per person per year over the age of 15 in 2016. That figure is actually on the rise, even though the goal of our Public Health Alcohol Act is to get that down to about nine litres by 2020. And the Health Research Board pointed out something pretty stark. It hit home to me, but that per capita consumption, because 11.646 litres doesn't mean a lot to someone as a number. That's equivalent to either 41 litres of gin or vodka, 116 bottles of wine or 445 pints of beer per person per year, which I think is a crazy amount of alcohol. That's, that's, um, that's an average of approximately, what, nine or ten, nine pints a week? Yeah, on now average, obviously. On average. On average, right. Now, okay, so about 20% of the Irish population don't drink Irish adults. Yeah, I was just about to say that 20% don't drink, so that on average is still, that's a lot. Yeah, so it could it could actually be higher. And the thing is, it's not actually it is how much we drink that is really important because it is very high in Ireland. But it's also how we drink. Um, so the National Alcohol Survey Diary in 2014 found that about 54 percent of 18 to 75 year old drinkers were classified as harmful drinkers. And one in five drinkers in the survey reported engaging in binge drinking at least once per week. And that figure actually goes up. I can't remember the exact figure, um, but it goes up when you look at how much that is per month. It's probably um, about, I'd imagine it's about 100%. <laughs> well, 20% don't drink, so. <laughs> no, no, it is. It's very high. And that's why I wanted to talk about it on the podcast, because I just feel like it's a, it's, it's a health topic that's just not discussed enough. And it's kind of just... In Ireland, particularly, we have this saying: "It'll be it's grandeur," you know. And oh, it, don't it's, start it's me odd. on that thing. Yeah. So I suppose there's some facts and figures to give people context. Um, in terms of health, I've discussed previously on my blog and on my Instagram the sort of wide-ranging effects of excessive and binge-style alcohol consumption on our physical health, and these are really important. But in this podcast, I wanted to look more so at the mental health impacts because they're definitely something I'm less well versed in. Okay. So I guess I'll start off, um, Joe, by saying. That we know in Ireland, our low risk guidelines are a maximum of 17 standard drinks per week for men and 11 for women. And these should be spread out over the week. Um, two to three alcohol free days should kind of be in there too. Now, I'd imagine a lot of people don't know those guidelines and probably don't stick to them and think they can save up the standard drinks for the weekend and do them all at once, which you definitely can't do. Uh, so I wanted to start out by asking, what are some of the biggest mental health impacts from drinking itself? Like what happens to us when we go out on that typical night? Okay, so um, what my master's research or my master's dissertation was on was alcohol hangover. 
So I did quite a bit of research into kind of the aftermath of what happens after you consume alcohol. And we know from the um, problematic or the kind of substance use disorder, especially with alcohol use disorder um, Mm -hmm. research, that what happens in the period of time after we consume alcohol is that we actually change the chemical balance of our brain. So now this is off the top of my head, but um, it, it impacts things like, like your serotonin turnover. We know serotonin is is typically low in, in people who struggle with depression. Um, so serotonin can decrease. What happens is it spikes and alcohol essentially makes serotonin, you know, it, it, it spikes your serotonin, makes it basically flood through your, your brain and your body. Mm. But what happens in withdrawal is that it's not able to produce that same amount and it actually drops from baseline levels. And it can take up to 15 days, according to, again, this is in the alcoholic kind of research, but mm. it can take up to 15 days to even re- reach your baseline again. But it also has it also has impacts on things like your GABA receptors, which are to do with um, your mood, your dopamine, mm. um, basically the chemical balance of the brain over the mm. course of the kind of I guess short term not immediate short term but like those kind of two and three weeks your chemical balance is actually all over the place on top of that it impacts a thing called neurogenesis and neurogenesis is the production of new brain cells so when your brain is trying to replace all its old cells that are dying alcohol is actually inhibiting neurogenesis from taking place properly so you're not producing the metro brain cells that you should be to replenish all the ones that have have died and we know we turn over brain cells all the time mm. so i think what i a lot of what i learned in my master's research was that although we know that hang, hangover obviously has a significant cognitive impact in that we know that there's massive cognitive deficits that exist even after our blood alcohol concentration is zero even Mm. after that hangover period that our brains are still impacted now one of the kind of really shocking pieces of research and it's the only piece of research that's been done of its kind was a longitudinal study over 30 years um and i think the participant it was about 500 participants in the uk now i i quote this study a lot because it actually is shocking Um, There is nothing to compare to, so I don't know how strong these results are, but they are quite significant. They found that the only safe level of consumption um, outside of being completely abstinent was zero to seven units per week. So so seven units per week is like not even an entire bottle of wine. Even if you drink within the recommended guidelines between seven and 14 units, I'm going to say that was at the time of the research anyway. And it was under 14 units. Even if you drank between seven and 14 units, you still had visible um, cognitive deficits and visible structural brain changes compared to those who were abstinent from alcohol. So it impacted um, specifically the hippocampus and Mm. the white matter of the brain. So it actually shrunk the amount of basically the amount of your brain there was. It shrunk that and it impacted the hippocampus specifically. And as you drank more in this study, it was a dose-dependent uh, amount of brain damage. So the more you drank, the more damage to those um, aspects of your brain health. So really, really shocking that the mm. only, I guess this is one study, and I know one study is only kind of the 
only one piece to the puzzle, but this is the only mm. kind of study of its kind, and it is quite significant, that the only safe level of alcohol consumption compared to not drinking at all was under seven units. So I thought that was really, really scary. To be and honest. hippocampus being, I suppose, to generalize, but like our memory area. Impacts our memory, yeah. yeah. Impacts, um, impacts emotional regulation as well. Yeah. So you'll yeah. see hippocampal damage sometimes in people with depression and they might struggle um, with managing their mood. Mm. Um, so, yeah, memory specifically, yeah, and, and emotional yeah. regulation. Yeah. And I suppose just so people are aware, like, obviously, there's differences between countries in terms of how you, like, people um, categorize what either people call it a standard drink in some countries, people call it a unit in others. In Ireland, we call it a standard drink, which is equivalent to 10 grams of alcohol. And to give people an idea of what that looks like in a drink, it's 100 mils of wine. As far as I know, it's one serving, like a, about a 37 and a half mil serving of a spirit. And it's actually half a pint. So this is scary. <laughs> scary. Yeah, I think a lot of people would probably, I mean, a standard drink is not what you're served probably in a, in the pub maybe to know where you're having to um so i think it's really important to be mindful of, of a what a standard drink is and then b how many might be totting up in a week because as you've kind yeah. of said obviously this was one study but even at that we do know that like i might get hate for saying this but from a health point of view it probably is better to not drink than to drink but at yeah the same I, time, look, look i, I, I acknowledge say that in, in terms of your brain health, there's no specific safe limit unless you take under seven units a week. Now, again, I also get hate for saying that because people say, well, that's, you know, that's impossible. They say, what, you know, why, why would you, how, how could any of the country function if we're only going to have, you know, three or four drinks a week? Mm. And I think what kind of, what kind of frustrates me around that is that we're basing our knowledge or we're basing our judgments on cultural norms. So, yeah. We're saying, oh, well, how are we supposed to manage only three drinks a week or four drinks a week? Because everybody binge drinks. Um, but if I, I, I want to make this comparison because I think it's actually quite funny that if we look 50 or 60 years ago or maybe longer, I'm not really sure. But I've heard anecdotes from my grandparents and my parents. People were giving their children cigarettes and they were just smoking away and they didn't know that it was an issue. Yeah. And I'm sure if you said at the time to one of those parents you know you should probably cut that down you know there's this recent research that says that that might not be so good they'd probably say oh no well you know young i don't know young patrick he loves the cigarettes why would i not give him 10 cigarettes Mm -hmm. so that'd be ridiculous Mm -hmm. and now looking at that example it seems ridiculous but i feel like that about alcohol because we're basing our consumption on absolutely nothing other than cultural norms and nothing related to science or evidence so when people say to me you know, oh, well, sure, we're grand having six pints on, on the weekend. And we compare that to what we know in the science. You're only picking six pints because it's a cultural norm or it's your norm or what you're used to. And that's what we're basing a lot of our, our knowledge on. Um, it's nothing related to really what the evidence says. And the evidence says, like I said, dose dependent. The more you drink, the more at risk you are. Now, I do want to also say that in terms of socializing, Um, yeah exactly yeah there is a positive aspect to alcohol so meeting people obviously socializing really really important for our mental health what i think it's important to note is that people often cut out if, if they try and decrease their alcohol or cut out their alcohol they also cut out their socializing and that's not the way to do things if if you're going to cut out an aspect or even cut down on aspects that promotes your social engagement and 
you're going to cut out your social engagement with that that's obviously probably not the right way to go yeah exactly no and I I want to I suppose caveat like I, I, I do stand by what I said from a health perspective like we, that is probably what the science tells us but at the same time like that's not me saying everyone has to go teetotal it's it's how we it's the cultural norm that I think we do need to open up the conversation around because what we're have what we're seeing is young people growing up in this culture where it is normal to go out and sink a nagging or a shoulder or like you say six pints on a night and that that's not a cultural norm and it's not a cultural norm for the long term either um, and not everyone will maintain that level of consumption long term, but it does set up a norm that maybe, you know, might be hard to break out of. Um, 100%. And I think that's yeah, really yeah. important. Um, but obviously, like the social aspect is really important. And what's nice, I think, to see is the rise in a lot of the alcohol free uh, drinks. So like we're seeing a lot of alcohol free spirits and there's obviously a lot of alcohol free wines. But I've heard they're not quite on the taste level yet. Right, a lot of alcohol. Okay. Yeah, I've heard that. I haven't tried them, but the spirits. Well, are I'll like... tell you one thing: um, the alcohol-free Heineken, and this is not an ad, um, yeah. is really <laughs> is, <gone. laughs> is is really really good. Genuinely, I've heard um, that. No, I've heard yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's brilliant because that's what you're doing is not necessarily saying everyone needs to drink these all the time. It's saying that if you go out and you want to be out for a prolonged period and have a beverage in your hand you can alternate or you can have one or two and then go on the alcohol free after that. It's going to be much better for you the next day, much better for you in the long term, much better for your wallet as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess what we're saying, I don't want people listening to think that we're just bad mouthing alcohol. We're not. It's about opening up the conversation about a, how much we drink, but like B and probably more importantly, the pattern in which we do it. Yeah. 100%. Um, I, I, I use this example as well in relation to smoking um, just to kind of give people an idea of, of, why we we do say these like we're not demonizing alcohol we're you know we're we're saying in moderation or within the healthy limits or, or we're yeah. letting you know we're letting you know your risks so that if you do want to make that informed choice that is absolutely your choice to make yeah but um at the same time in one of the um lancet studies that was released 12 years ago now 2007 mm -hmm. they basically rated they got um GPs to rate um, the harm of different types of drugs on this validated scale and they rated it on level of dependency and um, level of harm to self. Now alcohol came fifth on the level of harm to self to the person mm. um, on, on, the, on the scale and tobacco oh. came ninth right so the harm yeah. of, of tobacco was rated far lower than than alcohol however when someone gives up smoking for their health they're patted on the back and they're said you know people yeah. support that they say wow that's fantastic well done how long are you off the smokes how long are you this you know are you finding it hard and they're they're quite supportive when they hear Absolutely. somebody's giving up smoking if somebody gives up alcohol and doesn't drink on a night out for their health they're absolutely ridiculed. They're they're yeah. completely butchered, and that's where I feel like the conversation needs to change. Because, yeah. you know, if if someone wants to promote their health on what has you know, my family comes from a they actually own a pub and have done for many generations. So I've seen kind of the alcohol stuff up close, and mm. for something that ruins a lot of lives and a lot of people's health, someone giving up or someone cutting down on alcohol should certainly not be ridiculed, in my opinion. No, I totally agree. And thanks to, thank you for mentioning that, because I think 
I like as you say that is where the conversation needs to be opened up as well like I'm a I'm definitely a person who I will totally admit that I had plenty of nights where I did some binge drinking during my college years and as I kind of went past maybe second year of medicine I was like that's not how I want to go about it anymore but it was very challenging um you know don't be dry <laughs> literally it, yeah it's 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 often um, it's often other people's it's often other people's issues with yeah. it rather than your own because yeah. I find from my own personal experience I've done sober periods um I think twice two significant ones I did one for like four months and one for yeah maybe three months I'd say mm. um over the last like 10 years but um <laughs> even even during those periods I often find that I'm really at peace I'm really happy with my decision to do what I'm yeah. doing and you get so much pushback from other people and it's yeah. other people who try and dissuade you from from doing that even though um it's something that you're quite happy with. Yeah. I even I had somebody recently um talking to me um, through my page who said that they had organized to go out with their friend and they were supposed to meet up on whatever Thursday evening. And they said, Oh yeah, we're going to go out for dinner and drinks. And they said, Oh yeah, I'll go for dinner, but I'm not drinking. And their friend said, actually, no, I don't want to go if you're not going to be drinking. Oh, and I honestly, I, 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 I found that that, that blew my mind. Yeah. That, mm. that really blew my mind because I've, I've been in a situation where people have joked about that, but this was a real life scenario. And yeah. when I did my post about alcohol and, and its impact, I found a lot of people were in the same boat that they were happy with their decision, but other, other people were trying to dissuade them or, you know, you're dry, you're no crack, you're no fun. We don't want to hang around with you if you're not drinking, why are you even coming out? And then that kind of, you know, makes you feel bad about yourself that maybe regular old you who isn't drunk isn't really good enough. And and that's, yeah. you know, not a not a nice position to be in. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'd encourage people, I suppose, at this stage to we have some really good websites in Ireland about um, alcohol awareness and ask about alcohol is probably my favorite because it gives you a rundown look at the human body of the different effects of alcohol. It tells you what the safe limits well not safe. Sorry. It tells you what the maximum um limits that you should not exceed are um safe is not the right word to use there at all um it tells you what they are to be a bit of awareness it tells you what a standard drink is but it also has this really great calculator and if you enter in what you drink each week it will give you the cost of that and tells you what you could save if you were to cut down a little and it equivalent it will equate it to something cool like they might be like oh you could afford a car in a year or something like that you know or okay, holiday yeah. or something so it's just a bit of motivation um, a mortgage maybe yeah, listen. <laughs> um, I suppose the other um, thing I was going to say is that, like, it is it is about a cultural norm, guys. I think that's what's really the important point, and to just be aware of the volume you might be consuming, the pattern in which you're consuming it, and to be very aware that, like, it is absolutely okay to make a decision for you to either cut down or to not drink. Similarly, to how people make dietary changes or exercise changes, they're positive lifestyle changes, and you should be applauded for it, not. Um, I suppose made to feel ashamed or ridiculed um, and we see it's culturally acceptable at certain times of the year like plenty of people who drink do dry January and that's seen as okay and I would say the stigma goes down but after that it's probably a lot harder during the year to um yeah 100 it's, it's almost like it's almost like dry January gives people an excuse and that's an acceptable yeah. excuse because lots of people Even, are doing yeah, uh, even nowadays, I find myself even going out when I don't want to have a drink, even having the car isn't a good enough um, excuse anymore because people say, oh, we'll get you a taxi and I'll bring you back in the morning and blah, 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 and they'll make excuses to try and get you around your barrier yeah. that you weren't drinking. 
So yeah, yeah it's okay. uh, it's quite difficult. But even if you're listening to the podcast and you have been one of those people, just be aware that this could be a really positive change for a lot of people. This could be something that impacts their life significantly, or maybe they've mm-hmm. uh, struggled with it and they, they they don't even want to mention that. Um, yeah. And someone they've obviously made a, an informed choice or an educated decision about it, and not to. If, if you were one of those people, maybe not to be one of those people in the future and just realize that maybe there's more going on than what meets the eye. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Joe, I'll hold that second topic there because I know we could probably talk about it for a good you know, 20 minutes. There's a lot to chat about with Ireland and alcohol. <laughs> but I'll finish the podcast. Um, first of all, by thanking you again for coming on for a part two. It's really kind of you to give so much of your time. And I know people are going to take so much value from this episode. Um, I wanted I to so. ask you, I forgot the last time, I was going to start my podcast interviews by asking people to give, uh, asking the guests to give the listeners one tip to bring a bit more of an Irish balance to their lives. And I totally forgot to do that. And you were the first guest of the podcast. So I have to do it now. <laughs> uh, so from a mental health perspective, I guess, if you could give the listeners maybe one thing they could do. One thing is a hard thing to pick out, I know. Um, but just from your perspective, just to maybe to encourage positive mental health, it can be to do what we talked about today or something totally separate. Um, get your sleep. Good one. If you are... This often shocks people. If you are getting up at 6 a.m., count nine hours backwards. And that is when you should be starting your bedtime routine. Mm. So get your sleep. It It is related to most, if not all, uh, mental health disorders, whether it's a symptom or a predictor. And that is a fantastic place to start. Definitely. Sleep is literally key. Absolutely yeah. key. If anyone hasn't read Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, get the book today. Listen to a podcast by him. <laughs> you will never, never go back to less than seven hours, ever. Um, great. Thank you so much, Joe. I really appreciate it. Could you let people know where to find you and any upcoming content um, or anything else like that that you have, where to find your podcast, all that? Yeah, so my Instagram page is at headfirstzero. And, um, if you want to message me, you can message me. Um, I also run the Head First podcast, which is on Spotify and it's on um, Apple Podcasts and all of those popular ones um and also uh, i work for spectrum mental health and we do private counseling we also do um corporate mental health so if you have any interest in maybe changing your workplace um in relation to uh, its mental health stigma or attitudes um all my details will be on my instagram page brilliant thank you so much joe again i really appreciate your time um guys definitely give at head for zero a follow honestly you will learn so much and you'll be able to take so much positivity for your own mental health so again thanks so much joe and guys thanks for listening if you did enjoy this episode please do let us know um tag us in your stories on instagram or whatever app you're using use it mindfully obviously um or leave a comment here um and i look forward to catching up with you guys on the next episode thanks so much joe thank you